So we begin 1 Corinthians this morning, and um, this is going to be a, a kind of a brief teaching. When we begin a book, I always begin by just doing an overview of the whole book. And so we're going to read just the first three verses together, and then just talk a bit about the book in general. So let's just look at 1 Corinthians 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Paul, called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we're beginning this new book today, and I pray that you would open our hearts to receive it, and that as we go through this book together, you would be changing us, and making us more like you, making us more in love with you, and help us to live lives that, that where it's very clear that our allegiance is with you and our love is with you, and help this book of 1 Corinthians to, to do that in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so who is the author of the book of 1 Corinthians? Paul, also, Holy Spirit, that's true, for it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, <laughs> nope. all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, Every word in this Bible has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes you'll come across more liberal Christians who don't want to believe everything in the Bible. And you might read something in 1 Corinthians and say, oh, that, Paul just wrote. That was Paul, not Jesus. I believe what Jesus and not what Paul said. Well, no. Everything in the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So Paul wrote this, yes. The Holy Spirit wrote it, yes. And who else wrote it? Sosthenes, our brother. Yes. So let's discuss a couple of things. So Paul, who was Paul? Paul was an apostle. His name was also Saul. And believe it or not, his name wasn't changed to Paul when he got saved. It's a common misconception. Saul is the Hebrew name that he had, and Paul was his Greek Roman name. He goes by both, and you see him being called both throughout his life. So it wasn't like he was Saul before, then he became Paul. He was always, we always say Paul, though, because most of, his written, most of his letters were written in Greek to Gentiles and Greeks and Romans and things like that to where they knew him as Paul, not as Saul. But both names are the same. Anyway, Paul, um, he was a very unique person. He was a Jew, but he was also a Roman citizen. He was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, a city well known for making certain types of durable cloth from the wool of shaggy black goats that were common in that region. So like they would make tents and they would make sails and other kind of thick, durable fabrics out of this, this goat hide. And that was also Paul's trade. At certain times on his missionary journeys, he would make tents. He was called a tent maker to make ends meet while he was serving God. And we don't know exactly how he was a Roman citizen, but we know that when he claimed citizenship, a soldier said to him, I had to pay great money to be a Roman citizen. And Paul says, no, but I was born a citizen. So something about his upbringing, maybe his relatives, maybe there was some sort of relation to one, maybe his relatives were in the army or something like that, and he got through that 
way, or maybe in, in Tarsus there was some sort of agreement about those who were born in Tarsus were a citizen. Either way, we know he was born a Roman citizen, but he was raised a Jew. He was brought up in Jerusalem under a man named Gamaliel, which is a very significant person. He was a Pharisee that was well-known. We heard about him in Acts 5.34. He was called a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, respected by all people. So that Galileal was the person who, who trained up Paul to where Paul became a Pharisee. And so he had credentials. He was, so Paul was on his way to being a very successful Pharisee. We meet Paul for the first time in Acts 9. When we first meet Paul, he was a strong persecutor of the church. He was responsible for the imprisonment and death of many who were Christians. He had a letter in his hand from the high priest which allowed him to go into synagogues and arrest Christians, both men and women. And Paul said in Galatians 1, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, being more extremely zealous than them all. So he was on his way up as far as Jewish, you know, and Pharisee stuff. He was up there. But then in Acts 9, he's on his way to Damascus, and the Lord appears to him, and he becomes a believer in Christ. And in Galatians 1, Paul kind of recounts part of the story in his own words, and he mentions that after he became a believer, he didn't go up to Jerusalem right away. He went off to Arabia for a while. He came back to Damascus for a while and kind of hung with the disciples there for about three years, began preaching Christ there. Um, and then he went up to Jerusalem and he met only Peter and um, I believe it was James. Yeah, only Peter and James that first time that he met in Jerusalem. But then he went from there and began preaching Christ all over the place. He wasn't, a, he, he wasn't an apostle yet at this point. He was just preaching the gospel everywhere. And it became known, like in Galatians 1.23, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. It's a pretty powerful testimony. So 14 years later, Paul says, he returned to Jerusalem and he's reporting about what God was doing through him with these Gentiles. And in Galatians 2 verse 9, or Galatians 2 verse 2, Paul says, I submitted to them, the apostles, when he was in Jerusalem, the gospel that I was preaching among the Gentiles. And then in Galatians 2, 9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. In other words, they became apostles at that point. They were recognized that God had a call on them. They had recognized God had called them to be apostles. They gave them the right hand of fellowship so we might go to the Gentiles and they might be circumcised. And so that's how he became an apostle. He traveled all over the place preaching the gospel, planting churches, raising up elders to care for those. And he was also greatly persecuted. He was beaten, stoned, left for dead, um, often in great distress, in great weakness, in great poverty, in great suffering. And he wrote many letters to churches. So that's who Paul is. And then there's a man named Sosthenes. Um, and we saw him too in Acts. So the story in Acts... Remember when Paul, maybe you remember this, when Paul went to Corinth, um, God said, don't be afraid, stay here for a while. He said like a year and a half there preaching, he's protected. But while he was there, there was this leader of the synagogue named Crispus, who became a believer, and his family too, and joined with Paul. And so then this guy, Sosthenes, became the next leader of the synagogue, who was a Jew. At that point in the story, though, Sosthenes is not yet a believer. Couldn't be, because they wouldn't have made him the next leader of the synagogue if he was a Christian. So he's the leader of the synagogue, and in that story, they begin to try to arrest Paul, bring him to the authorities, to a Roman 
uh, ruler named Gallio, but Gallio basically mocks them and doesn't care about their thing, lets Paul go free, then the Jews turn on Sosthenes and start beating him. And you wonder why, and maybe it's because part of Sosthenes' campaign to become the next ruler of the synagogue was by saying, I can get Gallio to arrest Paul, perhaps. So when it didn't happen, they beat him. Who knows? Either way, in that point in the story, Sosthenes is not a believer. He gets beaten. That's the last we hear of him until here, where now he's with Paul, writing this letter to Corinth as a believer. So that's kind of cool. So two uh, rulers of synagogues became believers in Christ at Corinth. So who are the intended recipients of this letter? Who, who is Paul writing this letter to? It says in verse 2, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And I love this because um, there was a time when I was having a bit of a debate with some like liberal Christian about a certain area of doctrine. And I was saying, well, it says in 1 Corinthians this. And he goes, okay, but you've got to know the context of Corinthians. Who was Paul writing to in Corinth? You know, what, you know, who was it? And I said, it's not, it wasn't, it, Paul was writing to every single person in all places to call on the Lord Jesus Christ. So all the Paul's writing applies to all of us, not just a certain people at a certain time in a certain context. He's saying, this letter is to you, but also to all in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's to all of us. Okay, so who were the people in this church? There were Jews, which we'll see in 1 Corinthians 7, 18. Um, one of the prominent ones we know being Crispus, like I mentioned, and Sosthenes. These were both ex-rulers of the synagogue. There were also many Gentiles in the church of Corinth, and a lot of these Gentiles had also been part of, obviously, other religions before they were Christian. They weren't all atheists. They were also pagans. And so we can see, as we go through this letter, that Paul has to deal with a lot of pagan influence in the church. A lot of things happening that came out of influence of pagan religion, whether it was certain views of marriage or certain views of what's okay in terms of sexuality or meat offered to idols and how we handle that. And then certain aspects of like spiritual, like experiential kind of worship. There were certain things where Corinth sort of went further than Paul was comfortable. And Paul had to kind of draw them back and say, listen, you don't want to go that far because, you know, if an unbliever comes in here, that they're going to think you're crazy. So we should have order in the church. And so you can see that there's different influences happening in the church that come from these kind of pagan influences. But they were a church that was also greatly blessed by God. We're going to see next week as we get more into it. They were truly a strong, somewhat mature church. Paul begins to mention in verse 4 and 5, In everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so you're not lacking in any gift. And so they were also a, a good, solid church in many ways. They were mature, but they also had a lot of corruption. So that can happen at the same time. You can have a church with maturity and corruption. That can happen. There was great division. There was a lot of sin. And apparently the leaders in this church weren't dealing with sin. They were just kind of letting it happen. And even worse, they were allowing their people to go get their stuff taken care of by worldly authorities and getting judged there. Instead of trying to help here, their leadership was kind of lacking in that way. Um, and there was lots of confusion about worship. There was a lot of things being done without being like without love being a part of it. Like Paul had to send a whole chapter reminding them what love is because they weren't living in that, um, and they just so they needed a lot of help. So this letter Paul writes is just you know they're they're a good church. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's sin and corruption. There's, there's some good things too. 
As far as when it was written and where, um, we saw in Acts that Paul left Corinth after a year and a half. Um, he went to Jerusalem, and later he ended up staying in Ephesus for three years. And most believe that it was during that time that he wrote a few letters, actually, this one included. Um, now, we also know that this isn't the first letter Paul wrote to Corinth. It says in 1 Corinthians 5.9, I'll just read it to you real quick. 1 Corinthians 5.9, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So, and we'll get into that context later. But he's, So he's referencing a letter he already wrote previously. And we have reason to believe that this letter here is in response to a letter that they sent him back with questions. And so this letter was written probably around A.D. 53 to 55 while he was in Ephesus. And so let's just do um, a purpose statement for the book. There's really two purpose statements, the reasons why Paul wrote this book. The first reason is to correct problems he saw or he heard about from the church. The second thing is to answer questions, like I said, answer questions he wrote back to them. And so we have the structure here in, in 1 Corinthians 1, the first nine verses is the introduction, the greeting, the blessing, and those kinds of things. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, through the 16th chapter, we have the, the main content of the, the letter. And then the conclusion is the last few verses in 1 Corinthians 16. But in that body, in that content, we have these two different, um, different parts of it. The first part is this response. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 1, 11, he says, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits against one another. Against one another. In 1 Corinthians 6, 13, the body's not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord's for the body. And these are all different things. He's, he's writing them based on what he heard that was happening in the church. But then we see a transition in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, where Paul says, Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, and he'll say things like in 7.25, Now concerning virgins, or 8, verse 1, concerning things sacrificed to idols, in 12.1, concerning spiritual gifts, <coughs> then later on, concerning the collection for the saints, and so you can tell he's responding to questions they had. So there are a lot of really great themes in this book. I'll just mention a couple of them. One of the first really great themes is unity in the church or division, but not in favor of division, but against division. Paul spends a few chapters really emphasizing the importance of a church having unity and not being divisive and not picking their favorite leader and taking sides and complaining against other teachers and mine's better than yours because that and your guy's this and whatever. He sends a few chapters trying to handle that. It's a big theme is the importance of unity in the church. Another important theme in this book is church membership. Not how do you get people to become members, but more how do you care for those in your church. So part of that discussion is like, how do we care for and disciple and raise up and minister to and teach these people in our church? And the other aspect is, how do you handle unrepentant sin in a church among those who belong to your church? What kind of discipline should you have towards people that are, they belong to your church, but they're in unconfessed sin? And how is that different than how we treat unbelievers that are in sin? Because there's a difference. And so Paul gets into that as well. And Paul will say things like, 
don't associate with the sinful believer, but associate with the world, of course, that are in sin, but they need you there so you can share the gospel, but don't associate with those who are professing Christ but living in unrepentant sin. So there's a difference there, and we'll get into those things. It's a, it's a big theme there. And then another big theme that goes on for multiple chapters is the role of, of spiritual gifts and church order and love and how those things all work together. What's the proper context for practicing all these, these, varial, these various gifts and what should a typical weekly church service look like? Um, interesting side note here. Um, I know some of you have been to like more seeker-friendly churches in the past, and so there's this tendency to be totally opposed to any thoughts about like what would the world think if they knew what we were doing and so we'll say things like the church isn't for the world it's for the church and it's just for you know and i do believe a lot of that but there's a point in first corinthians 14 where paul says imagine an unbeliever walks in the doors and sees what you're doing and they think you're crazy and so there's this aspect of it is healthy to consider yes this is for the believer this is for training the believer but unbelievers should be welcome to come in, and they should be able to hear what we have to say and see how we are, and we should be living in a way that's an example to them of we, we know the Savior, we know the Lord. And so it's okay to think of those things, and that isn't being seeker-friendly. Seeker-friendly would be like, let's stop teaching through the Word because most of the world finds that boring. Let's make it entertainment instead with a funny video and some comedy skits and then like a couple of verses to make you feel good and just to get the masses to come in. That would be seeker-friendly. But still, teaching the word, having worship together, but also wondering, like, we could invite our non-believing friends and, like, how would they relate to what's going on here? How would they understand that? Those are healthy and okay thoughts to have. And so Paul's going to get into that. So that's a big theme there, spiritual gifts, church order, love, all that stuff. Um, and another important theme is the importance of the resurrection. That's First Corinthians 15. There were apparently some in the church that were not believing in the resurrection. They believed that maybe it didn't happen at all, or maybe it was figured, or maybe just like a spiritual thing. But Paul makes it very clear, like, no, if he didn't raise, then our entire hope and faith is in vain. So a lot of great themes in this book. Um, and I know that when we went through John together, I said John's one of my favorite books. Then we went through Acts, and I said Acts is one of my favorite books. Then we're going through Romans, and Romans is one of my favorite books, too. And this is one of my favorite books, too. So just so you know, every book we're in so far is like one of my favorites. This is a great book. I've read it many times. I'm, I know you guys have, too. It's one of the most quoted from books in the New Testament. I mean, there's just so many great things. I'm not going to go very fast through it like Romans. I don't feel the same need to, to take it in huge chunks. I feel like it'd be okay to, to go a bit slow and let these words kind of saturate us and just... Let us grow together through this. And so I'm really excited. We're going to spend though, a very long time because, you know, for example, the topic of church unity goes on for chapters. And I'm not going to do even one chapter a week. So we're going to go slow through that. We're talking about similar themes for a long time, but I'm trusting that God's going to really help us and um, you know, help us to, to grow in Christ and to grow in our love for Him and our love for one another. And, you know, back to that verse I read before, you know, the Holy Spirit being the author of this book. Um, the reason why the Holy Spirit gave us the Bible. So I'll, I'll read it again, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training, so that the man of God or the people of God can be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we teach through the word so that you can learn to understand it also, so that I can help you to understand it, but also so that we can be taught, reproved, corrected, and trained, and equipped 
for every good work. God's got a calling on your life. He's got, he's got people in your life that you're ministering to. He's got things in your life you're involved in. And for all those things, this book was meant to equip you for every good work so you can be adequate. So um, let's just go ahead and, and pray together and ask God's blessing over the study of this book together. Father, uh, we just come before you and um, we thank you for giving us so much truth. Yes, there are still questions we have. There's things we can't sort out. But you've given us so much that we need to master before we begin to ask the harder questions. And this is a book worth deep and long reflection. And I just pray, God, that you would cause your people to, to grow, that you cause your people to see you more clearly than before, um, despite the fact that I often feel so unworthy to be the one sharing these truths. I pray that you would be with us, you'd be guiding our conversations, you'd be guiding the study of your word, you'd be guiding our relationships. Um, and we ask that you would cause us to learn the gospel and to share the gospel and that you would cause this church to be full of people that love you and serve you and are blessed to, to be a family together. In Jesus' name, amen.